You're listening to Incredibles with Jasmine Arch and Damon J. Quaid. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Incredibles with me, Damien J. Clay, and my co-presenter. Hi everyone, I'm Jasmine Arch. And today we've been joined by our fellow admin at the Incubator Writing Community, a writer of speculative fiction and spectacular all round, Andrew J. Savage. Spectacular all round, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and today with us we've got a special guest, another member of the Incubator, Rowena. Hi Rowena. Hello. Hello. Hi Rowena, welcome. Do you want to tell us something about yourself? I live in Sydney in Australia and I'm a cross-genre short story writer. My favourite form of fiction is uh, speculative fiction but I don't write very much of it because I think it's too hard to write. So I, my hat's off, hat's off to everybody who thinks it's, who, who does really well at Incubator. Um, I, I began publishing short stories in about 1994 I've written ever since then. I've received publications and awards for my short fiction. Um, I've published two non-fiction books on learning and memory. For a day job, I've worked with children and adults who have learning attention and memory issues for about 30 years. Um, My last publication was in the current issue of Southerly, in the violent issue. Southerly is Australia's um, oldest and one of the most prestigious magazines, so I was delighted to be included in it crime mystery novel um, called A uh, A Cloud of Frozen Air, which is currently looking for a publisher. So we chose um, a discussion piece for today. And the piece in question was Why Are Americans Afraid of Dragons by Ursula Le Guin. I really enjoyed reading the essay because, well, her personality really shines through to it. But I also really like um, the topic because I live in a country like like America, where people are afraid of dragons, which is to say fantasy is so not a thing here. The only literature that comes out in Belgium, from from Belgian authors at least, is like crime and literary novel. But I have yet to see a Belgian author publish a fantasy piece, and I can't wait for that to happen. How do you guys feel about this? I think that's really interesting. I, I think um, Australians are absolutely terrified of, of fiction. We're, we're a very close culture to the American culture anyway. My, my grandmother used to look at fantasy novels and scoff at them. Yes, yes. It's not real reading, is it? Yes. It's because, because they're not realistic, right? And, and yet um, when we look at all of the advances in technology, the recent advances have basically come out of ideas from science fiction novels. And I think just recently the culture has been getting more and more conservative and less and less willing to look at possibilities. But when we look at, as I was saying, when we look at technology, recent technology, most of it has come out of science fiction novels. You know, I remember reading science fiction novels when I was a girl, you know, about magical things like, oh, goodness, mobile phones and and automatic tellers in banks and i remember my parents saying oh what rubbish that would never happen (laughs) (laughs) but no i i think australian culture is very similar to american culture and and there's this general withdrawing of is it a lack of bravery i don't know i don't know what it is but i find i see more and more that like children's imagination gets stumped from the beginning 
because like when I was a kid, I would be so happy with nothing but a pen and some sheets of blank paper. And a lot of kids now get these coloring books with all the drawings printed in and they're like confined to what's in there. When, When they color outside the lines, they get, well, they don't get a scolding, but they do get a gentle admonition and, and mummy and daddy show them how to do it right. And they're not allowed to invent their own world anymore. Well, school has ever been like that, of course. I, one, of, one of my young clients um, was put on detention when he was in uh, kindergarten because he was asked to colour in a tree. Right? No. So he did. We're, yeah, we are, and he was from Germany, and he coloured in the tree red. So he was put on detention because we don't have red trees here. We have green ones. That's evergreen. So they, but didn't, I, so they've never seen, like, a, a tree in the fall, a maple tree in the fall with red leaves then? Apparently not, no. That's not even unrealistic. No, I know. He was just, he'd just come back from a trip to Germany. So he knew exactly what colour things could be. <laughs> Kindergarten fascism. Wow. I know. <laughs> but the school, school does crush, crush the life out of, out of inventiveness and fantasy, I think, in general. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's a part of, of why we're afraid of, of dragons because well, a lot of us are. I've had the good fortune to grow up in a household where no one was afraid of dragons. And I grew up reading my brother's vast collection of um, speculative novels. And my mum was absolutely adamant about not censoring anything I read. And she let me read stuff that, in hindsight, was maybe not quite suitable for a 12-year-old. But I did get to read a lot of stuff um, that I'm grateful for now and the stuff that wasn't suitable for me went over my head anyway <laughs> so it's all good <laughs> well I had I had a similar household and one of my happiest memories is is with my brother when we'd go on holidays and he would take a book of HP Lovecraft stories and we'd lie in the semi-dark and read them to each other <laughs> terrify That's the life awesome. oh it was great <laughs> So one of the things about this is that the article itself was written in 1974. And I find it it quite a scary proposition that it's still as relevant today as it really was then. Mm, It's more relevant, I think. Yeah. We're we're just moving backwards away away from free thinking, really. And if you think about a lot of fantasy, it's becoming very constrained too. Like... You know, if in terms of, um, for example, tropes, you know, there are generation ships, for example, and you can only write about certain things to do with generation ships because everybody knows what they're like. Well, no, they don't. We're very constrained even within fantasy about what we're allowed to write about. There's so much still left un- unsaid and people sometimes seem reluctant to say it because it's not realistic or something or, or, or that wouldn't be right. Even like fantasy people often then focus on world building and on what's rational and what's not. But look at like a niche genre like, um, like steampunk. I mean, what's the use worrying about realistic world building in steampunk when realistically no airship could support the weight of a, of a, of a, um, 
a steam engine. Yes, exactly. Yes, so, yes. So there, are, there are restraints. Most of these restraints are completely beside the question anyway. Yes, and they're pointless. So, yes, they are. But, I mean, does that mean that even dragon-loving peoples are, af- are afraid of dragons? If this article was written in 1974, uh, um, are we becoming afraid of dragons or have we always been afraid of dragons? I think oh, we've what? always been. Well, there's a there's a, a line from the article which which I think kind of points to this very well. Such a rejection of the entire art of fiction is related to several American characteristics, and it includes a few things: um, puritanism, work ethic, profit mindedness, and it's it's perhaps those elements I think which have pushed out this ability to the the benefit of imagination and play essentially. Profit-mindedness in particular, yes. I think the, the idea that you're um, wasting your time sitting reading, making money out of that, is, is a valid one and probably has been around for a while. But I, I do think that we're, getting, we're becoming more afraid of dragons rather than less. I think as the world gets, gets more and more worried about uh, free thinkers, the gatekeepers are shutting the gates on, on radical ideas and new thoughts. I think the second last paragraph really speaks to maybe the, the heart of the issue and maybe why we're, we're feeling that things are becoming more difficult for dragons. For fantasy is true, of course. It isn't factual, but it is true. Children know that. Adults know it too. And that is precisely why many of them are afraid of fantasy. They know that its truth challenges, even threatens, all that is false, all that is phony, unnecessary and trivial in the life they have let themselves be forced into living. They are afraid of dragons because they are afraid of freedom. Yeah, I I like that a lot and I think think that is a really good point. I go back to the idea that one one of the characteristics that you mentioned is, you know, Puritanism. And yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. that's what I see kind of growing yes. Um, yes. all around us. It's a, classic, it's a classic saying within writing, but that writers and dramatists use lies to expose the truth. And I, I think we, as writers, we all have a kind of uh, an inner critic which prevents us from telling lies. You know, all of our constructions are lies, but, but from actually telling real lies within our writing, the actual end result must point to a truth. And I, I think that's true of all writing, not just fantasy. No, I, I want to disagree with you in that our constructions are not lies, they are allegories. Well, they're, they're, such... I don't think they're always allegories. Um, I, I don't think they necessarily always are, are so direct. But we, the, the, but what we're dealing with is created things, things that aren't real. Yeah. It's pretty much most fiction. I think that ability to make someone understand a point through a narrative device is very powerful. And and to certain people, uh, people who don't like that, yeah, it could be it could be quite scary to them. Maybe so, but I mean, if they were truly honest with themselves, it's it's. The fact that we present our work in the form of story and in the form of prose that maybe makes it so scary, 
because no one has ever faulted Salvatore Dali for being unrealistic in his work. And yet writers are sort of not frowned upon so much as belittled because, oh, that's not, that's not realistic. One of the things that the game points to is that people are hesitant to accept fantasy or science fiction or anything that can't be found in real life because, among other things, they're afraid to confront a reality other than the one they force themselves to endure. You know, they, they, yeah. they, they've bought into this idea of the narrative of their own lives and anything that can damage that, anything that can make them think or, or, or break the spell that they've put themselves under, it's frightening. Yes, people are afraid of magic, aren't they? They so are. Well, the, the irony of, of, um, of our schooling system and how we train children away from fantasy like that into being responsible adults in earning money and, and you know, growing up and not playing anymore is that, that the research suggests that play is absolutely critical for cognitive development in adults, not just in children. So if we don't play, we stand a much greater chance of, of developing older, it, it's currently thought. So the idea of, of play uh, is, is critical to the good functioning of our community and our brains. It's, it's ironic that the idea that the only way we're, we're going to function well is to um, be serious, you know, and not jump in puddles is sad because it's so wrong. It comes back to freedom again too, doesn't it? I mean, oh. if, if you're training a society to be workers oh. and not be free-thinking, and yes. not entertain the concept of possibility or possibilities or what could be rather than putting up with what is, mm. then that's probably a great way to do it. I mean, there's so much joy to be had in play, isn't there? Um, to be in your own mind, to, to be anywhere. I mean, it, there's, a, there's a great book that's been currently written um, currently in, in Australia called Boy Swallows Universe, Trent Dalton. And he talks about this character in prison, but he's not confined because his mind is free, completely free, and he can imagine himself to be anywhere. And that's, that's a wonderful gift for anybody, I think, in any circumstance. I, I find it quite interesting that you mention... Um, free thought quite a lot here because it is it is the antithesis of bias I, and i think people uh, in power politicians especially have a vested interest in people have, having bias yes it's how they get elected absolutely so maybe it is maybe Becker's fiction is a way of getting to people breaking through the bias and making people see things in a new way and that's why it's threatening yes i think yeah. so I, i've had a quote on my mind since I've since I've read this, um, and it's the do of the Puritanism one. It's 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 H. L. Mencken's uh, line on Puritanism, which he says is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> <laughs> How threatening is that? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the horror. <laughs> the horror. Yes, the horror. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if, if uh, as we start to, to see more um, of the native peoples, you know, so for example, First Nations people in, 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 in the United States of America getting more into writing fiction, if we'll start to see things change a little bit, um, 
just thinking about what makes British fantasy um, British fantasy writing so prolific in comparison, there are just so many British fantasy authors. Um, yes, could, yes. could it be the closeness to pagan folklore, uh, the fact that those people don't feel that they're, you know, they're, uh, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'm just wondering if there's something there. Well, they, they have a whole history of fairies, don't they, and elves and, and you know, whereas we in Australia have a history of nothing, you know, we have nobody, no no fantasy at all, whereas our Indigenous culture has has a whole incredibly incredible wealth of, of stories about creation. So, yeah, you might be right. So in part it may be that, like, newer nations have not had, like, the time to build some sort of folkloric background. Oh, I, I think I think you can actually point very specifically here to the matter of Britain, which is foundational to. I, don't, I, I can't I can't see anything that's as foundational, especially to British fantasy. That kind of sits at the basis of everything over here. In other European countries, there are similar stories in Ireland and Germany, especially. You've got other cycles of stories that are fantasy. Everything seems to find its way back there, even even if only in terms of symbology. You always you always spot its influence. Yeah, you do. Um, in French, in France, I find that there's a big difference between Brittany as a region and the rest of France. But the Britons don't consider themselves French, do they? Um, actually, part of their legend is that their island used to used to be a part of of, of Great Britain. And that it was that it was shorn off, and it drifted, and it drifted away, and, and attached itself to the continent, or something like that. And like like people in England, they do have a very vibrant inner life and a very vibrant folklore and tradition. But other than Germany and England, and like that little piece of of, of France, I don't find that much fantasy finds it that much folklore finding its way into literature in the form of fantasy sadly i often hear from people that um publishers and readers are sick of you know fantasy set around the matter of britain and medieval england even though game game of thrones is massively popular and is and is kind of set exactly there yeah but it is very prevalent I think look in your own backyard and see the magic there, which is what I'm trying to do with my current work in progress. Um, but I'm trying to use like Belgian mythology um, because it's there; it's just neglected. Yeah, no, I've been I've been uh, exploring. I'm living in Japan, so I've been exploring the the some of the the ideas here and, and seeing what I can do with them. Does Japan have a have a really healthy mythology like like? Britain? It does. It's it is a very multifaceted, um, complex mythology of it, and, and I, I wouldn't pro- even profess to to try to speak to it because I, I I really don't know enough about it, honestly. But just just from from what I've read and and I've been here about fifteen years now. Um, so what I've experienced and what I've read, it, it's it's really interesting. So there are layers of 
um, religious mythology and, and belief and there are folklore um, tales and there are ghost stories and um, there are all these different aspects layered on top of each other. Um, so there's a lot of material there to to work through. And I always try to find a way, if I can, to, to do that um, in a way that those things relate to me as someone who's not um, I'm living in Japan, but I'm not Japanese. So I, I, I try to find ways that those things sort of spark ideas for me uh, as, a, as a kind of interloper, if that makes any sense. So I wonder, I wonder if, if you have a culture uh, where you have this rich heritage, you can, you can begin to dream of things, can't you? Whereas if you come from a culture like yeah, or maybe the US. I can't really speak for the US, where where there's no no there are no fairies, there are no dragons, and there are no there's no nothing to dream of. All you have to do is dream of an aspiration and improving your physical status. I mean, maybe that's the problem. Maybe the colonies are in trouble because there's not enough to dream about. Well, that that could be it. I mean, here there are waterfalls named after dragons, and 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 there are um temples with um, dragon statues in them and um, there are literal actual statues of dragons all around the place just 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 in Japan even in the middle of Tokyo in a, in a big city so um, that would never happen here actually sorry it has happened my apologies it has happened we have a, we do have a dragon but it comes from our Chinese um, our Chinese culture their own dragon which is beautiful I have to say if Americans yeah. wanted to look for magic in their own backyard, I think the only direction would be that of their Aboriginals. That, that that's where it would have to come from, and maybe that would be uncomfortable. Yeah, and and that's kind of where I was going with my comment. I mean, I'm, we we always we've we've discussed this sort of concept of cultural appropriation and what we should do, and so I I think we always walk a very difficult path around that um, and I try to use some of these things that I've bumped into or I find fascinating to spark other stories rather than trying to tell stories that someone Japanese should probably be telling but it's a it's a tricky area and I, but I think maybe as we start to see more of these kinds of uh, writers emerging we, we, we may see more stories that there may be more American dragons stories you know, we're using dragon as a as the idea of the fantasy, but there may be more American fantasy stories coming when from those voices. Mm. You could be right because I, I think I, I'm listening to your comment about statues of dragons, and here we have statues of a banana, a big banana, a big lawnmower, a big sheep, and and a dog on a tucker ball. But you have gargoyles. <laughs> you, you have gargoyles. Let's let's <laughs> let's unpack that. There are gargoyles all over that city. Gargoyles, yes, that's true. But they're British gargoyles. They're not. They're not. Then they're, they're not homegrown gargoyles, really, are they? They're not Australian gargoyles. But the closest gargoyle we've got is a bunyip. Who knows where the bunyip mm. came from? We don't have bunyips on our buildings. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> you should. Yeah, we should. We should. If only we knew what they looked like, <laughs> we could awesome. put one up. 
it, it's interesting to me as we're recording this just to, just over the last few days we've had these two horrible shootings in america in ohio and texas and it's interesting to note the response that came from the president yesterday was an attack on video games. Uh, I'm sure attacks on horrible movies and, and, and whatnot are coming soon. When something's going wrong, all the way it's gone there is to attack culture rather than look at root causes of issues, is to blame mm, what they see mm, as an, ab- yeah. an aberrant culture. Well, you can't blame the money-making you know, parts of the, the community because that, that goes absolutely against the whole thesis of, of who the culture is and, and what it's trying to do. Um, but I, I think that is a really good comment, though, because it goes to the heart of this question about Americans hating dragons. Um, that generation sees game playing as a waste of time, um, very, very similar to Le Guin's comments in, in her article. And, you know, the fact that it's a multi-billion dollar industry seems to have passed by the those dinosaurs, um, you know, thought process. So they they don't understand that, and the 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 younger voices are calling out that it, you know even if you just want to take the economic argument, that's clearly a massive part of the economy now. But they're not looking at it from that perspective. They're going to the culture, as you've said. They're they're bashing things that they feel are not productive, wrongly in this case. And then you know if you take a place like Japan, where there's a lot of game playing. There are very few, in fact, almost none um, incidents with with uh, gun deaths, and because there are almost no guns here, and that there are a lot of people who play games, including very violent games. Um, but there's clearly a common thread. I don't think game playing is it. Doesn't game playing provide an outlet? We all have times of frustration and times where we could just smack someone and if you can find an outlet in in a game or in a book or in a movie or in or in writing something or in going for for, i don't know for anything doing doing something that gives you an outlet is a good thing no i think we need we need this this playing and this this outlet for our sanity well, how many old people play games? Very few of them, really. Me? It's a it's a culture. The people who are who are currently in power are old and they don't True. understand that. And who knows who their advisors are? They might also be old, in which case they're looking at how much money does a gun bring in versus how much money does a game bring in? And they probably don't take the time to consider they've got their blindfolds on about new technology, basically. Um, so, so it's a case of who's in power and, and how open they are to new ideas. I think there's another element as well that computer games are you know, one of the key distribution points for speculative fiction. Mm, yes. Um, yeah. That there are a huge part of the market is, is is basically speculative fiction turned into games. Again, with mm. movies, Philip Pullman's his Dark Materials. They made a film of the first book, and it was pretty obvious that they didn't want to film the second two books because of the you know how they are very critical of religion, uh, very critical of authoritarianism, and the only way they I think they they were going to get made is if they were made in the UK. So does that mean the UK is more open to radical ideas? 
I think so. Yeah, I, I think we we still have people who fall into that narratives. It's interesting because amongst my friends, we've been, we've all been watching Great Hack, which uh, is a documentary on Netflix about how uh, personal information gleaned from the internet and sites like Facebook was used to throw the American election and also throw the Brexit vote over here um, by a company called Cambridge Analytica. Well worth watching if you haven't seen it. And, and I think the issue is with people who they can convince to fall into a narrative. With, with the free thought movement, the one thing that we can, we can honestly say is that we're very happy to end up with the conclusion, I don't know. But a lot of people don't like not knowing. Or, or thinking they don't know. A lot of people won't be happy until they've got a set narrative of how things are. And I think what we do have is is quite a good proportion of the population over here who are, I guess people would call them cynical, but, but not, not prepared just to settle on an idea just because someone thinks it's a good idea or someone's told them something. I think that's a huge part of, of fantasy. A narrative can diverge from the real, the normal, and... You know the one that the one that people want you to believe. Expected, yes. It's where it's really interesting, of course. That that's that takes the imagination and the the leap of faith in terms of a reader to follow the author. You know, historically, we've got our own kind of magical realism. Uh, you know, with books like um, The Secret Garden, oh, yes. Chase, Tom's Midnight Garden, that, those kind of things, which are a very British kind of magical realism. And as, as kids, but it's impossible not to be affected in a very deep way by those kinds of stories. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, as, as part of a colony, I was affected deeply by all the British stories like that. In fact, I was so affected by the secret garden that I, I've dreamed of having a walled garden my entire life. Yes, walled gardens are amazing. We had one at my university, we had an Italian walled garden, where I proposed to my oh. other half, by the way. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect place to do it. Oh, just unbelievably nice, yeah. Yeah, there's something very magical about that story, even though it doesn't have any fantasy in it. Mm. There's that nighttime feeling. You know, I, I primarily write at night, and it's that two in the morning, three in the morning feeling where anything suddenly seems possible. And I, I just, maybe I actually got that from the secret garden, but that's how it feels to me. So you've, you've, Shall we call it sense of wonder? It's a real sense of wonder, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is a sense of wonder, yes. And I think British um, fiction does that really well in general. So maybe, maybe it's something we should all embrace in our writing and, you know, as, as we move forwards, think of ourselves as being a little bit more subversive and, um, and, and you know, own it. So we have to start to play. Play is critical, and, and, and I think um, stories should be playful. Something I've noticed in terms of prize-winning literary novels is that their uh, plot and they're losing their story and they're losing their characters and they're coming down to uh, very beautiful prose but almost in isolation to the story, which, as I said, is basically non-existent. I mean, for me, I, I love to read for the story and for the, the sense of wonder that generates. And I think speculative fiction does that brilliantly because you can't remove story from, from fantasy or science fiction. It just doesn't work. That 
in terms of trends, literary fiction is moving right away from that quite quickly for some reason. When it comes to this, I guess you could call me a, cent- a centrist of a kind because, because I, I find a fascination in plot, but I also find a fascination in character and character relationship. The writing that I do, I love to drive it about 50-50 between literary and whatever genre I'm, I'm writing at that, that moment, which I'm guessing may not make me very popular to whoever wants to read me, but that, that's how I like to read, so that's how I like to write. Well, well, I, but you have plot and you have a story. And you do have characters who drive the plot and the story, but a lot of literary fiction now, the story is disappearing. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's got to do with this whole fear of fear of dragons, you know, the fear of the uh, uh, a completely magical world where all constraints have disappeared. Because the characters are still there, although they're less than they were. So, because if you, if you have a minor character, uh, they can't drive the story. If minor character is your main character, they can't drive a story. But there's no story. So what you've got then is setting and beautiful prose. I can't, I mean, I can't imagine filling a novel with no story. Oh, well, well, well. Hats you should hats off to the people who manage it. I know, it's shocking. I pick up these books and they're wonderfully written. Beautifully written. The prose is excellent, but there's no story. You know, one thing that's really one thing that's really great about about Incubator have all these different ideas, and it's so incredibly stimulating, isn't it? That you know, you come in with these. Uh, you, you might be you know devoid of ideas one day, and and you know you sort of log on, and people are seeing thoughts and ideas and tangents and directions, and it's it's so great. I really enjoyed being a part of it. Yeah, it's um, it's a great way to like cross contaminate each other in a really awesome way. <laughs> yes, with, with stories about octopuses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's there's a lot of happiness here, isn't there? Really, there's a lot of in being allowed to talk about things that you can't easily talk about outside of a writing community. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you can't you can't go to a family dinner party and and gripe about your characters not behaving the way you want them to because people are just going to look at you and and go blank. Sort of. Well, I'm writing a story about a hooved octopus. <laughs> you say, "Oh, octopuses don't have hooves. You can't write it. It's not possible." And then you reply, oh, you're just afraid of dragons. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're just writing what you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know plenty of food octopuses. Okay, well, I think that's probably a good point to end at. So thanks to everyone for listening, and thank you to my co-host, Jasmine Arch. Thank you for having me again. And goodbye from Andrew and Rowena. Goodbye. Thank you for having me too. Bye-bye. And goodbye from me, Jamie Clay. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to Big Creatable. Did you know we have a monthly newsletter that you updated on every new episode? To subscribe, please follow the link in the show notes. Each month, you'll get an email from us when our next episode goes live. You'll get a sneak preview of who our next guest is and what we'll be discussing, as well as our tip of the month. Another thank you, Gim. We'll send you an ebook anthology of our favourite poems as well. 